Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at, tab at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Okay. I think I got myself put together now. I'm thankful for the opportunity to share the word with you, to expound on this passage. Um, I have a great appreciation for men who week after week uh, bring a message because it's a lot of work. As often is the case, I read the text the first time and I say, how, how can you get a whole message out of five verses? And then as I begin to meditate on it, I find that there's more things that come to mind, more passages, scriptures, than could ever be covered in a short period of time. So we'll get right into it. Um, I like to start out with a real-life story that kind of goes along with the message. I do not have one this morning. But I would like to propose an analogy um, as a way to identify with the people in this passage. Imagine that China took over the United States and set up a tax structure. In the process of time, a neighbor of yours became an agent to collect taxes for the Chinese government. But this person wanted to get rich, so instead of charging 10%, like the Chinese uh, government wanted, he collected 11% and pocketed the extra 1%. Would you think that person was great and wonderful, or would you think that he was an evil traitor? I think that sets us up to see what is going on here. What I would like to do this morning um, as a way of outline is look at the four things that Jesus says in this passage. This will help us see that the main point of the passage is Jesus has authority to call sinners out of the life they know into a life of following him. This new life can only be lived by faith. What do I mean by that? Simply this, God often instructs his people to do things that don't make sense in our human reasoning. Think about the children of Israel when they left Egypt. They were led by God through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night to the edge of the Red Sea. But the point that God led them to was a valley with mountains on either side. So they're hemmed in by three sides, the sea behind them or in front of them, 
depending on which way they want to go, and, and the two valleys. And then they find out that the Egyptian army is coming to destroy them. Militarily speaking, where they ended up, where God led them, did not make sense. But that's what God, where God led them. Another thing I thought of is, again, in the Old Testament, the Battle of Jericho. Think about this. If you were in Jericho, this mighty city, and you see, see this bunch of people that aren't even really trained militarily, have no weapons, they go around your city completely quiet once a day for six days, and then the seventh day they go around again seven times. Wouldn't you think that's silly? It didn't make any sense. Why does God tell us to do something that doesn't make sense? I believe it's always because he wants to give a mighty victory. God's instructions don't always make sense. That is why being a follower of Jesus takes faith. Let's look to the text. Matthew chapter 9. The first statement that Jesus makes is simple. Follow me. As we look at this simple two-word command, we're going to think about the man, the actual command, follow me, and then Matthew's response. I know that I have read this passage and looked at these two words and thought that they were a suggestion or an invitation. But as I've looked at this uh, and thought about this passage, I see it as there was authority in what Jesus said. Follow me. Matthew is called Levi in both Mark and Luke's accounts of this event. Um, Levi is a Jewish name. Matthew was an Israelite. But he was that neighbor who collected taxes for an occupying country, the Roman government. And the occupation was uh, dishonest. Um, most tax collectors would, would do what I, I said, you know, they would charge extra. In fact, Rome said they could. That was their income from being a tax collector. Many of them became extremely rich at the expense of their countrymen. You don't need to turn there, but if you want to, uh, in Luke 19, 1 through 10, we hear the story of Zacchaeus. Um, that story is on page 1630 in the Pew Bible, if you want to turn there. You, you may know, if you've been around church, you probably know the story of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because he couldn't see over the heads of the crowd. He wanted to meet Jesus. 
And Jesus stopped under the tree and said, I'm going to your house. What I'd, I'd like for us to think about is what Jesus said, what Zacchaeus said to Jesus when, he, when Jesus was in his house. Lord, Lord, and this is in verse 8, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Thing we see here, one thing we see here is Zacchaeus was rich. If I gave half of what I own, half of my net worth away, I would then be in poverty and someone would have to give to me so that me and my family could survive. So Zacchaeus was rich. He could afford to give away half. But he also said, if I give, uh, if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, when he says if, it's not in the sense that I might have taken something, but it's in the sense that I know I've taken from people falsely. So I will search my records and make restitution to them. Zacchaeus' story shows us from another place in scriptures that tax collectors were usually wealthy people and usually they defrauded others to gain their wealth. This was Matthew's life when Jesus said, follow me. He would have been an outcast from Jewish society, looked upon with the same disdain as a prostitute. He was a sinner by all, all, everyone's standards. So if we look at the next thing Jesus says, or in, in this follow me command, um, as I said, my thinking has changed. It's not an invitation. It's an authoritative command. Think of it this way. If you saw a child running after a ball that had rolled out into the street, you would yell, stop! An authoritative command. But your motivation for that is the child's well-being. Jesus commanded Matthew to follow him. Because Jesus wanted to give him a life that was much better than the life in which he was at. The simple two-word call evokes an almost endless list of questions. What about my business? How long do you want me to follow you? What about food and clothing? Where are you going? Why should I follow you? What's in it for me? Etc., etc., etc. But instead of questioning or making excuses, Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. Yes, Matthew responded by walking away from his tax office. Think about the significance of this. Tax collecting was Matthew's way of life, it's what he knew. He had financial security. In that he had a group of friends, fellow tax collectors, and he got up 
and left because Jesus said, follow me. That was the first thing he did in response. The second thing is pretty amazing. In Luke's gospel, Luke 5, uh, 27 through 30, Luke says that Matthew threw a great banquet. He threw a party for Jesus so that his peer group could meet Jesus. Why did he do that? Because he understood that Jesus had shown great mercy and grace to him by calling him to follow. And he wanted his friends to experience the same mercy and grace. When Jesus touches us with his grace and mercy, there is a desire to see our friends and family experience that grace and mercy. But the feast that, that Matthew gave for Jesus and Jesus eating and drinking with people who were known sinners caused the Pharisees to criticize Jesus. They criticized him because eating and drinking with someone was a way of identifying with them, being in fellowship with them. The question they asked is, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We're not sure if Jesus overheard them saying this to his disciples or that his disciples went and told Jesus. But Jesus heard it, and when he did, he responded to them. Before we go to the next thing, Jesus says in this passage, I'm going to share something that God has revealed is in my heart, and it's dark. I find myself thinking, oh, that person will never change, or that person will never change. Sometimes I even find myself thinking, I can never change. That is a disbelief in the power of God to change lives. But what is really painful for me to see is that that disbelief really comes from not desiring or not thinking that someone deserves to be set free in Jesus Christ. It is very much like what the Pharisees express here. They did not think that these publicans and sinners deserved to be touched by God. So Jesus says in response to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Let's think about about this. 
because the Pharisees were professional rule keepers, they would have taken this as Jesus saying, you guys are well, let me minister to these people who are sick. But if you put this saying in context with all of Scripture, you see that Jesus is saying, those who think they are well will not go to a physician. Now think about it. If, if you're physically feeling well, you don't go to the doctor. You go to the doctor when you have something wrong. You've got an ache or a pain. You're tired all the time. Um, there's a ringing in your ears. A myriad of things. If you just know something's wrong, so you go to the doctor to have it checked out. Why do I say all of Scripture tells us that Jesus is not saying, Pharisees, you're okay. You're good with God. But these guys over here need me because they're sinners. That's not what he's saying. He's saying those who think they're well won't go to a physician. You can turn to Matthew 23, 13 through 36. We're not going to read the whole passage. It looks like it's on page 1536 in the Pew Bible. I kind of scribbled when I wrote that one down. Um, you don't have to turn there. Jesus rails on the Pharisees to all through these verses. Seven times in this passage, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. In verse 14, Jesus proclaimed that they would receive a greater condemnation. He calls them blind leaders in verse 16. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus likens them to whitewashed tombs that on the outside looked beautiful and pretty, but inside they were full of dead man's bones, which would be, to a Jewish person, uncleanness. He says, to men you appear righteous, but inwardly you are full of lawlessness. These professional rule keepers had condemnation in their hearts toward Jesus because he broke the rules by eating with known sinners. They would never do that. They believed themselves to be more righteous than Jesus. How ridiculous. Obviously, Jesus knows the Pharisees are not well spiritually. In fact, none of us are. Listen to this from Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. This is the state of the heart before Jesus. I, I'm pretty sure that in that passage they're talking about unregenerate people. But what about after Jesus? Are we completely whole then? 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says a little later in Romans about himself. In Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25, he says about himself, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul had been a Pharisee. In Philippians, he talks about all the things he could boast about. He was one of those self-righteous people that thought he was okay with God because of the things, the religious activities he was involved in. He even persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But God called him out of that life into a life of an evangelist of the good news. He became one who lived recognizing his need for spiritual healing. This is the mark of a true believer in Jesus. They continually repent and call on God to give them victory, to heal their souls. Do you feel spiritually well or do you feel your need for Jesus to deliver you from the body of death? As ones who have accepted the call to follow Jesus, we come often to the physician for healing of our sin-sick souls. So Jesus is saying, in effect, those who are, think they are well will not come to the physician. Jesus continues. This is the third thing that he says in this passage. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is the focal point of the passage. This quote of Hosea 6, 6 is not in Mark's or Luke's account of this event. I find it interesting that the one... Matthew, who experienced this great mercy and grace, is the one who zeroed in on the fact that Jesus acted on the spirit of the law and not the letter. It's as if Matthew is saying, thank God, Jesus loves mercy more than religious performance or duty. The phrase, go and learn what this means, was commonly used as a rebuke for those who did not know something they should have known. What should the Pharisees have known? Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the verse goes on, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. If you would turn to Mark chapter 7, and starting in verse 6, and that's on 
1407, no, 1565 in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 6. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But I say to you, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have had received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. What was going on there was people were saying, I commit this amount to the temple. Or it, it could be money, it could be time, whatever. But God's command was to honor your father and mother, and part of that honoring your father and mother is to care for them when they're old. So the Pharisees said, well, if you've committed this much to the temple and you don't have enough time or money left over to take care of your parents, it doesn't matter. Um, they were ignoring the commandment of God, one of the Ten Commandments, because they had a tradition. This shows that their heart was more about religious activity or duty than the heart of the law. Matthew Henry says in his commentary on this portion of scripture, he says this, quote, This scripture which Christ quoted served not only to vindicate him, First, but number one, to show wherein true religion consists, not in external observances, not in meals and drinks, and shows of sanctity, not in little particular opinions or doubtful disputations, but in doing all the good we can to the bodies and souls of others, in righteousness and peace, in visiting the fathers, fatherless and the helpless. Uh, and the widows. And then second, to condemn the pharisaical hypocrisy of those who place religion in rituals more than in morals. They espouse those forms of godliness which may be consistent with and perhaps subservient to their pride, covetousness, ambition, and malice, while they hate the power of it, which is mortifying to those lusts. Um, Matthew Henry is saying that when you have the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, they are gravitate towards those forms of religion or godliness that serve the ugliness of their heart instead of Embracing the power of the cross to crush those lusts of the heart. The point here is that we are deceived if we think God is pleased with us because we are religious. 
God is not pleased with religious activity when the heart is full of pride, covetousness, stubbornness, ambition, malice, or other such things. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. This actually brings us to the, the last thing Jesus said, and this is my conclusion to the message this morning. He says, I did not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There is a sobering, twofold warning for us in this passage. The first part is that if you think you are spiritually okay, spiritually well, you will not go to Jesus the physician. And in this last statement, Jesus is saying that he concentrates his call to repentance on those who know they are sinners. If you think you're well, you won't go to the physician. The physician is not going to concentrate his call. He may not come to you if you don't think you're sick, if you don't think you're a sinner. To me, that is very sobering. The good news of Jesus always starts with the bad news. The bad news is that apart from Jesus, we are hopeless and helpless. Until we accept that reality, we can't see how it is good news to be called out of the life we know into the life of following him. For me, one of the best parts of the good news is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This means that when I am spiritually sick, or God reveals to me a darkness in my heart, as I shared before, I can go to Jesus and pour out my heart to him without shame because I know Jesus' righteousness is what justifies me, justifies me before God. It's not in how well I perform. It's not in coming to church every Sunday. It's not in preaching a message. It's not in singing. My justification is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness applied to my account. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
The Pharisees seemed to be super righteous to the people around them. But if your righteousness, if my righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, I will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no way. I can do enough good. If I lived another 150 years, there's not enough, and, and never sinned again, it would not be enough good to make up for the past 50, almost 58 years of being a sinful person. Yes, Jesus has the authority to call someone like Matthew, a traitor and an extortioner, out of the life he knew into a life of following him. That is good news for people like me and you. Do you hear God's call to follow Jesus this morning? Don't ignore it. I want to read from Micah 6, 6 through 8 in closing. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let us pray. Father, the simple, simple command, follow me, to a man who, by all accounts, was a sinful person, a degenerate in the eyes of his countrymen, shows a profound grace and mercy for you to call us out of the life we know into a life of following you. A life that is far better than we could ever hope for. A life of flourishing as a human. Being restored to fellowship with you. Father, I ask that your word would be powerful, as powerful as a two-edged sword, that it would cut to our hearts and show us the thoughts and intents of our heart. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.